Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to a It's Getting a Bit Chilly and the Winter Nights Are Drawing In episode of Poddywood. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... Remember, remember that something of November. That is right, we are here in November, the month after October, the one before December. But guaranteed we're going to hear Mariah fucking carry at some point this month. Oh god. Andrew yeah. Roger Carson. Nice to see you again. <laughs> well, funnily enough, you're talking about months. It always reminds me of that Billy Connolly line. Oh, you know, ba! Where I come from, that's the month after September. <laughs> well, the way I kind of look at it, we've got what, forty seven days? Oh, wait a minute. Forty seven. That kind of goes right into our What's in the Box from last week to open the show with. Okay, I've probably got to pull you up now. Is it actually 47 days with Till Christmas? Uh, uh, let's see for that. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you don't care. You're just sticking with your goods, aren't you? Yeah. It either is, or by the time this show airs, it will be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 47 Ronin. Um, yeah. S- starring work, you know. Is well, the 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 man who will forever be cursed with just that blank expression, Valley Boy voice. But oh my god, we do so love him. We, we do really do. I I honestly don't think you can find anyone in the world that has a bad thing to actually say about Keanu Reeves as a person. I know plenty of people who were funny enough. I was talking to Frank last night, who uh, worked with him on Constantine, because um, Frank wrote Constantine. Um, and he said, you know, he's the most genuine human being, down to earth guy, mm. and you know, looks after everyone. Yeah, and uh, there's a, there's a friend of mine. It, it, this is like a friend of a friend story. And he said that he was out in Manchester and bumped into Keanu one night when he was touring with Dogstar, and then he just kind of came and just hang with these guys, just sharing cigarettes. And then he said, "No, you guys, Jill, I need to go and do the show." And so, yeah, you know, I, I I take the mick out of his voice, but good God, I'd love to meet the guy. I really do, because he just seems oh, so yeah. genuine. Um, but yeah, this is not talking about him specifically. This is talking about 47 Ronin, the 2013 action-packed movie set in feudal Japan. Uh, quick roundup of the plot. You have uh, a group of samurai, 47 of them, which is quite important. Based on the 47 Ronin, we will yes. add. Yes, the, the actual thing, which is mentioned at the, the back end of the movie, although I don't know if that's actually... How much of it is genuine and how much is there in a kind of, oh, this was <laughs> this was based on a story by Frank Dukes kind of, uh, kind of thing. Um, but uh, you have these samurai, and then through dark magic... Uh, their lord attacks a visiting lord uh, who's in on the plot and he has to kill himself and then the the remaining samurai who are now ronin masterless samurai decide that they're all going to get together and they're going to seek revenge against this evil lord and his witch and the whole thing is this mix of I would like I would like to say very very beautiful ornamental and kind of authentic looking Japanese history mixed in with all these weird creatures and legends of dark Japanese magic and then right in the middle of this not even being the main character is Keanu Reeves as Kai yes. who is uh, who's who's called a half breed throughout the entire movie uh, about how his uh, his heritage isn't pure 100% Japanese, because this was around about the time when Japan was only just starting to open its doors to foreigners after closing yes. themselves off for centuries. So the the story is your typical kind of revenge story, and, you know, there's elements in there of, uh, of, of Macbeth, you know, with the, the plotting... Uh, Lord trying to overthrow and usurp the throne. There's a Robin Hood vibe going on in there as these group of outlaws start to band together and and waylay uh, traveling circuses to try and get themselves into the palace. It even briefly turns into Pirates of the Caribbean at one point (laughs) uh, where there's just loads of ships and I'm sure that must be the same set. 
I bet they kind of thought, no, we can leave these ships up from at world's end. We can do something with this in the future. And that's where it ended up. Well, this was that period where Universal and a few studios were doing a lot of co-productions in China and shooting in China. So you had movies like Mm -hmm. The Great Wall with Matt Damon and 47 Ronin and a bunch of others. Uh, So I think this was mainly shot in Japan, probably, or Asia, somewhere along there. Right, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to do the thing which you hate. You fucking went on IMDb, didn't you? Yeah, apparently it was all filmed over here. What, in the UK? Partially in the UK and partially in Hungary. Oh, well, that's, that's interesting. You, could, you can't tell. You honestly can't uh, tell. No, I couldn't. No. So, yeah. That's, that's all I've got to say. No, I couldn't. No. <laughs> uh, there, is, there is, however, a very, very strange disconnect that the movie has well on the one hand it's full of action on the other hand the action doesn't really go far enough and you're constantly feeling like the fantasy elements and the real world elements are kind of butting heads a lot mm-hmm. because it can't really tell if it wants to be one thing or if it wants to be the other and doesn't really go too far in either direction and i think that's to its detriment because it is a very enjoyable film. It is, isn't it? It is. It's it's a lot better than the seventeen percent that it's currently got on Rotten Tomatoes would suggest. Yeah, that that is a ridiculous critic score, and I think in doing a lot of research on it, I think we can kind of get down to the bottom of why that is. I I do want to say, and I'm sorry to bump into you there, but I just wanted to say the director Carl Rinch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel as severely suffered from this movie because he has never had another feature. This was his first feature. I don't think it's as big as a Hollywood flop as something like John Carter. I mean, for a first time director of a feature, I mean, he had $175 million to make this movie, which is ridiculous money. Yeah, there's a lot of that which shows on the screen. I know. And it made $151 million back. So that's not that far off. You no, know, in reality. But if you think about how much then the B would have put in in terms of publicity, which is usually easily the budget again, you can imagine well, why they would be a little bit upset with it. Well, I'd be interested to know how much of reshoots came to that because this film was delayed by a year. And I believe a lot of it was some reshoots for more Keanu Reeves stuff to make it more internationally appealing. Uh, yes. Because as you know, he is not the main star of this movie. No, he isn't. Right? Sonata, he is. Yes. Right? Because uh, although Keanu is front and center on all the non-Japanese advertising trailers, everything, this is very much a Sonata movie. His character is the one with the full arc. Yeah. You know, his, his storyline is so meticulously detailed to a fault. It is beautiful. And I think when you look at those movies that suddenly get, the movie has been delayed or it's been put back for reshoots, that stigma gets attached to it. It's what I remember from seeing it in like the, the bargain bin at uh, Tesco at the time. Yeah, Not the bargain bin, the, the straight-to-DVD wall. Because I think it did get a limited theatrical run over here but i don't really remember it staying there too long but i do remember the rumor mill being they needed to do reshoots they were putting more keanu reeves in there which does then beg the question well does that mean that you're not as confident in the material as you should be they should have been i mean this film feels like it should be 20 minutes longer this feels this should be more epic in scope. yeah and it feels a safe running time for a movie like this and i think there must be more out there uh I'll be on that side where, yeah, I can understand where people say Keanu was misplaced in this movie. Yeah. To, but in I'll... a sense. But he is great at what he does. And the involvement of, and treatment of Keanu's character is essential to the larger story that is mm. going on. And it bridges the knowledge gap for Johnny Hollywood movie, who doesn't know the history of feudal Japan and the 47 Ronin. That is a character there that is there to introduce you and guide you along on it and open those doors of knowledge. Do you think that the, and we are going to get into spoiler territory here, so if you don't want to know what I'm getting into, just fast forward it like a couple of minutes and 
then catch up. Um, do you think that it was let down by the the bittersweetness of the ending? Because it doesn't have your typical Hollywood ending, does it? No, because it's the true ending. That yeah. is the truth of what happened to the uh, 47 Samurai they in real had, life. Well, they all had to uh, commit seppuku. Yes. Uh, and to In order to retain the honour that they had and join their master. Yeah, but they managed to get revenge for their master mm-hmm. in order to do that. And the, the way I look at it, and it could be, but I think not necessarily. I think Hollywood does as many downbeat endings, probably not on a larger scale, 175 million. Yeah, I can understand why this has that love story plot for Keanu and the, the girl character in there, mm-hmm. when realistically it does feel a bit displaced. It does. It it kind of feels more like if she's going to be in love with him, then he should be the main character. You know, yeah. it, it's kind of like the the Will Turner, Elizabeth Swan kind of arc, because everyone was then pivoting and focusing on Captain Jack. Yeah. You know, no, no one really gave a shit about Will Turner. But yet that's where the love plot is. And that's kind of how it feels like in this one. Like the the focus should have been on Oishi and yeah. maybe his relationship with his wife, but uh, you know there's there's a lot of notable noticeable um, actors going into this. Oh, yeah. um, you've got oh, God, I can't remember his bloody name. You have got Carrie Tagawa. Oh yes, yeah, who played the Ever Shang Tsung in um, yeah. Mortal Kombat. It's finally got to be Emperor. And when you look at that, look who. Uh... Uh, Sonado and the guy who's the main bad guy in this were in the new Mortal Kombat playing yes, Raiden and Scorpion. Were. They were, yeah. <laughs> uh, There's a link for you. Yeah, Sonado was also in uh, the, oh god, Endgame. That's it. I yes. Have to think for a second. Um, but the one name that I did pick up on was Gede Watanabe. <laughs> the legend <laughs> who who plays uh the the head of this traveling uh, what what is the name of them the the, the traveling players the traveling actors i can't remember what the name of the, the yeah, it's yeah. like no theater i think it is um but yeah as soon as i saw it it was like ah you're so stupid it's just completely <laughs> from uhf from yeah. uhf yeah and the thing is the guy the guy's like from utah or something yeah and, you know, he just puts on this accent, but it was actually nice to see him in a movie and not be a hideous racial stereotype. Yeah, yeah. it's true. I mean, yeah, and, and to be honest, for me, I mean, this was the movie where I really discovered uh, Rinko Kakushi, who plays uh, the witch character, mm-hmm. and she is phenomenal. I, I have such a fascination with yeah. her as an actress, and in this, she is so seductively evil it's just beautiful to see uh looking into the controversies because i was really interested in why this movie was shit on so badly and i'm here watching it saying i'm really liking this movie and i don't get what a lot of the hate is i think a lot of people had a problem with the fantasy twist on the true legend mm. okay yeah and, like i say it does kind of it, it feels at odds with the other half of the film yeah, but at the same time, look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, all right, which is critically acclaimed and loved because it's Tarantino. Obviously, you're going to love it. But that's, and no spoilers. Have you seen it? I haven't, no. Ah, oh, shit. Okay. Well, basically, at the, the end that they build up to, and it's all supposedly true events and stories, and then the end is a very fantasy take on the whole thing. Uh, one thing which I do think may not have resonated quite as well with Western audiences, at least, definitely it would have worked better over in Japan, is that uh, there is a certain rigidity to their performances. And it, it's right. all, all across the board. A lot of them are very, very stiff, very, very um, kind of like cold, emotionless, um, with only these little tiny glimpses of humanity and humor poking through. And I think that might have been a little bit of a uh, a wrinkle in trying to present it to an American audience, for example, who I think would probably go for a more animated, outgoing characters. Uh, I mean that that could be it, you know. I mean that could be a part of it at least, but that doesn't stop a lot of other movies along the same vein from being hits. So you could probably name about fifty 
foreign movies that people absolutely love where the performances are not the same as a Hollywood movie. True. And, you know, I watch a lot of Japanese cinema. There's a movie called Three Iron. I absolutely love that movie. And the performances are like nothing I've ever seen before. And it's very reserved and very slow. But the story unfolding is brilliant. There's nothing really wrong with the performances of the people. You know, they're Japanese. They perform a very different way. They're all raised a very different way. And probably they've got um, acting teachings that are very different as well. You know, if every film was the American style of grand posturing and, you know, unrealistic movements during monologues, where it's obvious it's acting, it'd all be boring. True. Um, I think the other thing, the historical inaccuracies are the things that people pick up on on this movie. But it's a movie. It's the same as every other movie. Every movie that is based on a true story has historical inaccuracies on it. Yes. Yes, that's true. And also, just because something works in real life doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to translate well to a film. Exactly. Yeah. For this, visually, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Watch this movie in 4K. Oh, my God. I want to watch this movie in 3D. Oh, God, yeah. Watch it in 3D because it is just luscious to look at. The colour is beautiful. The scenery is amazing. The sets are fantastic. Also, I thought the, the CGI was pretty good as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Like the, the the fight on on board one of the ships, the the big the big meaty slab that uh, that Keanu's fighting with. I thought that was superbly done, especially for 2013. I cannot find anything production wise wrong with this movie. No, it is everything you would want from a big fantasy movie. It is so beautiful to look at. You know, this isn't the asylum level sets or something you'd see on Beastmaster Three. Right, this is this is all of the most production is poured into this movie, and it looks beautiful. And compare it with the glut of disappointing big movies that comes out. This movie it keeps you engaged. I don't think it's insulting at all, in no. any way, shape, or form. And for me, I love the old samurai movies. I love Thirteen Assassins. I've got a bit of a love for the Last Samurai. Uh, absolutely adore The Seven Samurai. We don't get enough great movies like that anymore. And this is kind of the closest that we have gotten in a long time. And I am a big fan of this movie. I, I think it is majorly misrepresented uh, on Rotten Tomatoes especially. There is no way it deserves a, that low rating. Absolutely. Because, I mean, it, it, it's only 10 points higher than Captivity that we saw last week. <sighs> And the the difference is night to day. I don't know. You're saying oh, only ten points in it, but ten points isn't much. And this mm. this just blows it out of the water. I would easily put this in the mid sixties. Mm. Yeah, at, probably at the lowest because you will not be bored by this movie. No, and it does right? clip along at a fair old pace as well. Yeah, it doesn't drag. I mean, people might say, oh, well, the first half is a bit slow, but oh, that's your character building. Mm. You know, your second and third act, you get everything you could want from a big fantasy movie. Yeah, there's a few beats which I would have liked to have seen more. Like, um, there's a scene in the first half where there's two samurai coming out to fight each other. And one is basically like the, the mountain from Game of Thrones in this huge bulking armor. And then the samurai from uh, Keanu Reeves' side, um, I can't remember the names of the two families, but he gets cursed by the witch. And so Keanu Reeves has to take his place. The fight itself is quite short. I would have loved to yeah. have seen that to become a longer fight with more give and take from either side. But as it stands, he just kind of gets in a few blocks and then his helmet gets knocked off and the whole thing gets revealed. It's little things like that I would want to see more of because I yeah. think then that would have built up the suspense for when the reveal actually happens. Well, I, I place this and the other films that came out around that time that were the fantasy movies, okay? You know, Seventh Son came out, uh, Jack the Giant Slayer came out, which is another great film, I feel. And I travels. don't... <laughs> oh, no, no, that was... That was that was like six years before. They don't even want to be associated with that one. All right. um, this is not a bad movie. And I implore people out there who haven't seen it because of that low rating. You seriously are missing out 
Yeah, agreed. Agreed. It's not it's not exactly the movie that you expect, but it does give you a good ride. I, I think probably the closest I was thinking of while I was watching it was probably Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. It has that kind of yeah. feel to it. You know, you're getting the band together, uh, you're going off doing the, the quest to get everybody up to strength, and then you take on take on the water. I mean, there's even a bit where the whole place ends up burning down and people end up dying. So I think some of the beats might be a little bit too familiar, but that doesn't stop them from being fun. No, it's everything you would expect. If you grew up on the fantasy movies like... Um... I guess you can say like the Beastmaster or Willow or stuff like that in the eighties. Mm. You would appreciate this movie. Yes, you really would. Um, there's been a lot of movies that have come out that are higher rated than this that are much worse. You know, Last <laughs> Jedi. <laughs> oh, did I set you up for that one? Yeah, you all know something. I've actually made it my mission to squeeze a little mention of that fucking monstrosity into every single episode. You carry on doing it, we're going to watch it again, you know. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> I watched the fan well, edit. The, f- the fan edit. Yeah. It had a fan. That's yeah, amazing. Apparently. Okay, so uh, in wrapping up on 47 Ronin. Uh, it is far better than you expect it to be. A little bit slow in parts, and uh, the I'm not particularly sold on, on the, the characterization. Like I said, I thought some of the performances were a little bit wooden. But having said that, though, it is a really, really good period action film and there's a lot of heart going into it so yeah give it a watch yeah i think yeah i think you out there will enjoy it prince of persia that's the other one i was trying to remember yes and it would come back to me that is a far worse movie that was starring boring. steve's lookalike alfred merlina <laughs> hey you know what i'll take it he's a good actor yes is every time alfred merlina comes out in a movie uh, I'll get a screenshot of that movie and actually put Steve's face on Alfred Molina. The Doctor Octopus one was brilliant. Yeah, you little bastard. Okay, right. I think that sums it up, don't you? Yeah, I don't think we can squeeze any more out of 47 Ronin, so I think it's time to get some anniversaries on the go. We watch them again all of the time or we get them on Prime for free. We only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. I've just thought of something. That line in the song, oh, you get them on Prime for free. You don't get anything on Prime for free. Yeah, you subscribe to the bloody thing, and every film that you see on there, oh, you got to buy it's three quid. Hey, don't mess with the song. It's all we have. <laughs> yeah, I suppose Disney Plus doesn't really scan, though, does it? No. Anyway, anniversaries for you, you pessimistic shit. <laughs> what? <laughs> Complaining about our only song. Jesus. Right. How many more songs do we have to eliminate from the show before you're happy? So, anniversaries this week. As usual, we have four. Four. Ooh, lovely. Lovely. Okay. Lovely mix Two. back. <laughs> quite quite a mixed bag, actually. You know when you like get a box set of four films and you only wanted two of them? Yeah. But you get an extra two anyway? That is this week's anniversaries, all right? Is one of them a cheap knockoff of Universal Soldier? Uh, let me have a look. No. Okay. But there will be a surprise in line with that in a few moments. Oh, shit, really? Okay. Okay, so yes. Uh, let's start... By going back to the early 80s, when... Oh, my God. I can't believe I actually pillaged this movie for this week. <sighs> Death Wish 3 was released. Oh, no. I've, I've, I've not seen it. I I did see, like, a review that they did on... Um, Electric Boogaloo, by any chance? No, it was... Uh, Red Letter Media did a review of it as part of one of their shows. But no, I've not actually seen it. Don't name drop other people on our show. They're not doing it to us. All right then. I I once saw a review of a on a popular online channel. All right, fair enough. <laughs> anyway, okay. Uh, Death Wish three. This was in the middle of Charles Bronson's uh, role of Paul Kersey, which he did for five movies. Probably would have been six, but he died unfortunately. And uh, this was the last Death Wish to be directed by Michael Winner, 
the dead horse flogging director <laughs> behind Death Wish 1, <laughs> Death Wish II, and Death Wish 3, as well as movies like The Sentinel, Firepower, Hannibal Brooks, and all those other movies you can't even be asked to find. He was also a restaurant critic. Well, yeah, he was yeah. a lot more than that, trust me. I want to say the reason why we go from Death Wish to Death Wish II to Death Wish number three. Well, basically, the Canon Group, those well known purveyors of perfect movies. <laughs> Quality cinema all round. Quality cinema. I, I would take any Canon cinema or film nowadays. Oh, ever. God, yeah. Over they did a lot Robocop, of the stuff. Don't forget. No, they did not. Oh, no, you... that was Orion. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Orion. Yeah. No, 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 no. Uh, the the Canon Group did everything from American Ninja to American Ninja 2, 3, 4, 5. They did Bloodsport, <laughs> didn't they? Canon. They did do yeah. Bloodsport. Yes, yes. So you know the caliber of movies. Oh, oh yes. So, so terrible and cheesy, but you love them for some strange reason. Now, they did a poll in the 80s. Did they get uh, their name? <laughs> I'm sure she I'm sure she was pressing charges, put it that way. Um so instead of going for Death Wish I I I, the Roman numeral three, they changed it to the number three because in the poll they discovered that half of America cannot read Roman numerals. I'm sure that, that all changed when Rocky came out. No, it all changed when WrestleMania 3 came out, I bet. Oh, right. So basically, Vince McMahon's been teaching America how to read Roman numerals. Yeah, well, even he gave up at 13. Oh, what was it? <laughs> WrestleMania X8. That doesn't, yeah. What, what, the, what the hell does that mean, X8? It, it's, it's when your events start resembling the bottom line of an optician's eye chart. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Death Wish 1 was set in New York, and I have actually been to... Some of the locations where that first Death Wish was filmed. And it has the most disturbing rape scene involving Jeff Goldblum coked off his tits that you will ever see in a movie. I'm not even sure I want to see Jeff Goldblum coked off his tits, let alone raping no, someone. It's bizarre to sit through. Um, and then obviously there's Death Wish II, where Charles Bronson's daughter gets raped. And then obviously you can't have Death Wish 3 without... Mirana Sirtis getting raped. Yeah. Uh, which is very infamous if you've heard interviews with her recently of how she was treated in that scene. Yeah, there is an interview of her on like a panel. And yes. She's, and she's saying how horrible it was shooting that whole scene and how exposed it was. And, uh... Yeah, apparently one of the, uh, the camera operators tried to cover her over between takes. Uh, Michael Winner shouted at him in front of everyone because it was in- interfering with lighting the shot, and uh, yeah, he was he was he was brutal to work for, but he was also a, a bit of a dick. You know, let let's be honest about it. Th- this is the Harvey Weinstein level of complete dick. Right? Also, when because... we're on the subject, what is the what is the deal with every single film like this in the eighties always has to have rape in it? It was, I, I, I'm going to be very controversial here, and I know I'm going to get hate mail. Um, I think because it was the era of like Reaganomics and the Republican Party, and you had all of these movies like Rambo we were mentioning, it was a very violent decade for movies. You know, it was always that, you know, guns, rape, death, blowing people up, Americana waving the flag, and there's something very sinister when you look back at a good portion of 80s cinema, especially in the action genre, mm. and especially in these type of movies. They are very unpleasant yeah. to watch. And I, I look at Death Wish 3 now, the rape scene is totally uncalled for. You, you don't need that scene in it. And the rest of the film is fucking ridiculous. Because one, it's supposed to be set in New York and it's filmed in London. And there was a major thing about it being filmed in London. So the end, probably 35 minutes, yeah, is one of the most violent 
gun displays I've ever seen. 83 people die in this movie, and that's mainly at the climax. This puts John Woo movies to shame. But Michael Winner, um, apparently he had a new assistant every single day because he would have an assistant following him around with a box of cigars. And if an assistant stepped over a certain line, he'd be fired straight away. And apparently every single day he was firing his assistant. And that only pales in comparison to the Charles Bronson story I have from this movie. Not to speak ill of the dead, but Alex Winter, who you know from Bill and Ted and The Lost Boys, uh, was in this movie because he was living in England at the time. He was actually born in England, which I didn't know. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so he is one of the gang members in this movie. And uh, he tells the story that Charles Bronson had a Jaguar car pick him up from his dressing room to drive him to the set every single time he was needed. And the set was only three feet away. Yeah, I was going to say it would have to be somewhere stupidly short. Yeah, you know, that's just excessive. Um, It's a very bizarre movie to see. right? It is major 80s excess, and I think it is probably the crown jewel in the canon movie catalogue because it was a huge hit for them. It even had a Commodore 64 game that I used to play that was ridiculously violent. And out of all of the Death Wish movies, this one has a huge following. It has Facebook groups all over the place. It is the most popular uh, movie out of the entire series. But it doesn't make it the most pleasant. No. No, I'm guessing they're also kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel because I think it's it's his best friend that you've never heard of up until that point that gets killed, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think the canon group must have got a deal with Martin Balsam, who was a fantastic actor from the, the 60s and 70s. And he did uh, Chuck Norris's movie The Delta Force around the same time, mm-hmm. which was also canon purchased. So I think that they could attract these names uh, into these movies with, with these payouts, but the movies weren't very good. It's like when they get Bruce Willis nowadays in all of these directed DVD movies where he shows up for half an hour and just records all his lines phonetically. Mm. I suppose it also gave birth to a lot of the tropes that you saw in, well, comedy sketches and things like Last Action Hero, you know, where he's there like, oh, it's like second cousin Vinny's house. Yeah. Uh, I guarantee you, you can watch all of the, the canon movies of the 80s and you will get something fascinating from them all because they've Never, I don't think they ever won an Oscar. I don't think any movie they ever did won an Oscar. Uh, I think maybe there might be one or two in there that um, may have got a little bit of critical critical acclaim, not major, you know. But this is the studio that did a version of Masters of the Universe, which has resulted in us never having another version of Masters of the Universe. Yeah, that was kind of like their thing, wasn't it? Oh, what do we do with this high concept fantasy thing? Let's set it on Earth. Yeah. Oh, we've wasted our budget in the first 20 minutes. Uh, let, let's go to Sacramento. Yeah. Um, or Superman 4. Yeah. Oh, I oh. forgot they did Superman 4. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God, that's all, that's an awful film. Yeah. But enjoyment because they're so terrible now. Yeah. And I wonder if a lot of the films that come out nowadays... I mean, we're starting to look into the 90s with films like Day of the Warrior and stuff that are so bad, they're great. And maybe these films that are coming out now, we're going to find an appreciation for them 20 years from now. When we're both in our 60s. Yeah. Oh, God, that's a horrible thought. Yeah, but uh, Death Wish 3, um, it's a it's film? not great. It's a, it's, a, it's a film, but there is an enjoyment to be had of it. Unfortunately, it just has... Uh, a rape scene, and when you know the true story of kind of what was going on with Mirana Sirtis around that time and how she was exploited on this set, it really takes you out of that movie. So sorry if we've ruined it for you if you didn't know. Are you, were you talking to me or the listeners then? Both. Oh, okay. Well, you know, Whoever will listen, really. You they, know. they know now as well. They know now as well. Yeah. So moving swiftly on from there, let's jump to 2002. A whole 20 years, Steve. There's been a lot of talk this week about it being the 20th anniversary of this movie. And we kind of touched on it last week. And I'm going to um, I'm going to redeem myself for my uh, 
treatment of Danny Boyle's A Life Less Ordinary by talking about his masterpiece of 28 Days Later this week. Mm. Right? It is one of Danny Boyle's greatest achievements in film. Not seen it. You have, Oh, my God. You have I haven't seen, seen it. I haven't seen it. No. Oh, I, I cannot wait till we get back to the good films on what's in the box. <laughs> no, I've seen, um, I've seen a few of Danny Boyle's, but I've never seen this because I've never been a fan of zombie films. There's, there's something about it that I, I genuinely find unsettling. And I know they're not like your traditional slow-moving shuffling kind of ones, but even so, I just find them... I just find them deeply unnerving and not very nice to watch. I know where it came from. It it came from when I was like about four or five years old and my auntie brought up a, a tape which had the Michael Jackson Thriller video on it. Oh, God, yeah. <sighs> Scarred me I for I did life. it for everyone in the 80s. Mm. Um, well, in innocence, I don't even think this is a zombie film, which may sound weird to you, right? But hear me out. Because... They're not like traditional zombies. This is like more uh, kind of like the Ebola virus, but it just sends people insane. It's the rage virus, isn't it? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah it's, it's the rage virus. With, I mean, these are never referred to as zombies. They don't walk like zombies in the street. I mean, these things are genuinely, you know, scary. And the scenes with them are genuinely scary. And there's no mention of them being zombies in this movie. This is just this epidemic that's broke out well pandemic really because it takes over the entire world um but we're just seeing it from like london up to north past manchester a bit i don't think there's salford salford yeah Yeah. (laughs) didn't see any difference in salford um i think i don't think they mentioned the name zombie in any of the george a romero stuff either I think that was kind of like one of his things, you know, like Day of the Dead. I think they mentioned the name zombie in it once. I I can honestly say we look at this as kind of like, um, it's weird, it's kind of a bit of social commentary style because it's very much harkens back to stuff like what happened in Rwanda and, you know, Sierra Leone and stuff like that, as well as kind of the outbreak of Ebola where these people just became genocidal, you know, and Mm. just crazed and that's the way i look at it i don't actually look at this as a zombie the the i want to creature as well basically in fact you can't really the infected I yes thank you way. yeah so the infected in this they're not slow moving zombies these things run fast you know these things properly chase you down the street and there's a white knuckle ride on it on some of these scenes they are genuinely terrifying and you you find yourself pausing for breath uh, but I tell you who has seen this. Stephen King loves this movie. He has gone on record to say it's one of the best films he's ever seen. He actually bought an entire screening of this movie in New York City. <laughs> you know, that's that's awesome. when you know you've you've got a great movie. I was going to say same it, thing happened with Evil Dead as well. Yeah, he fell in love with that movie, and that was pretty much the the uh, the impetus of them getting the second one made. Uh, exactly, and um, it was funny, kind of harkening back to last week when I was talking about the beach. Mm-hmm. And I found some funny link this week uh, because Killian Murphy was not originally supposed to play the lead. It was supposed to be Ewan McGregor. But the reason Ewan McGregor didn't play the lead in this film, Danny Boyle's film, is because he and Danny Boyle had a falling out over the beach, which he was supposed to be the star of, but they went with Leonardo right. DiCaprio. And it's like, you were supposed to do five films in a row with Danny Boyle? I get it, but geez, you know, it's it's a funny thing to fall out over. In harkening back to the beach and what we were talking about last week when I said, you know, it's the first time we broke away from you, McGregor, and, and did it with another cast, he was originally intended for that role. Right. I guess they probably thought, no, wait, no, I think there was a scheduling thing, if I remember correctly. It could have been, because either he would have been just finishing up on Star Wars or been yeah. doing something. Ewan was working constantly at the time. He was in something, like, every month. Mm. I remember seeing something come out with Ewan doing it. I mean, he was in Brass Stuff around the time. Big uh, Fish. Big, well, that was 2003. That was He probably would have been filming that around that time, yeah. to be honest. You know, but I always thought, you fell out over the fucking beach? Yeah, so I, I think you dodged a bullet. 
Well, they obviously patched it up because then he came back and did train spotting too, didn't he? The electric boogaloo. Yeah, exactly. And I think the way you've got to look at it here is if you do see it as a zombie film, it's a total reinvention of the zombie genre. And it's something, obviously, that Zack Snyder lifted to do his version of Dawn of the Dead. Mm. But that's when people were saying, fucking zombies are running. This is bullshit. Um, What is noticeable about 28 Days Later, this was one of the first mainstream films to be shot entirely digitally. Oh, so yes. yes. Shot on the Canon X1, and I had a Canon X1. So uh, they're amazing. It is was that like um like a like an SLR kind of thing, or was it like a a big, a bigger thing? Because I know that there was. So it was basically just a DVR. It was a beautiful camera, and uh, I I never fully got to mess with it as much as I wanted to. I did shoot some stuff on it though that was incredible. Very practical. You could really shoot a lot in in spaces with this camera. It was beautiful. Mm. I I know that there are some purists out there that do prefer film over digital, and I suppose it's the same people that prefer a vinyl over uh, like a, a CD or an MP3 or something. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I've got to admit, I I like digital. I mean, some people say, oh, it's a bit too cold. But then again, that's what post-processing is for. And if you've got a right kind of uh, right kind of DP or, and you get the lighting just so, then you still get a, you can still get just as much of a rich feel. So I don't... It's it's less now than it was at the time. Because yeah. I know that there was a big thing, a big backlash about, no, you want to stick to the more traditional methods. But at the end of the day, you know, it's just a tool. And you've exactly. got to get the right kind of tool for the job. And you can fall in love with one thing, but if you're going to stick with that, it's going to become a crutch. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and a final thing on this movie, uh, watching it this week, I was kind of amazed how much National Lottery product placement is in that movie. Is there it's a lot? everywhere. It might have had a lot of money from the UK Film Council, which obviously was the National Lottery was funding. Right. That makes sense. Supporter of. But the first thought was like, wow. Imagine getting that winning lottery ticket <laughs> at that time. I could just imagine just like the entire country's gone to shit and there's one guy who's surviving in a bunker somewhere and he's got his lottery ticket and he realises that he has actually won from the night before, but he can't claim it. That sounds like some kind of Twilight Zone episode right there. <laughs> it is. Yeah. You know, if I win the Powerball, I guarantee you the world's ending tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, 28 Days Later is 20 years old this week. Right. Well, okay. So we've got we've had a bit of a mixed bag so far, like we said we were going to. So what's the next one? <laughs> is it going to be higher or lower? Well, we're going to 1992 this week. All right. When the much-loved The Last of the Mohicans was released. Yeah, you know me on Tom Cruise. Yeah, pass. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm not a Tom Cruise fan. You know, it's such a fucking dick. Last of the Mohicans, not the Last Samurai. Oh, oh shit! <laughs> Fuck me. If anything reiterates the reason why I do this show with you, for moments like this, that's the first time in history Daniel Day Lewis has ever been called Tom Cruise. Shit, you're absolutely right. Yeah, God, I think it was talking. He was talking about forty-seven Ronin earlier. It just made me. It just kind of tied my brain into that. Uh, but to be honest, that that's why I kind of linked it to this period now because um, of the forty-seven Ronin link. Uh, and funnily enough, yeah, Tom Cruise does have a link with the director Michael Mann because Michael Mann directed him in Collateral. Mm-hmm. You know me, I love my Michael Mann. This movie is just as good as Collateral, Manhunter, Heat, The Insider, all of the great movies. I love that my Michael, Michael done. man. I love my Michael man. Uh, but Last of the Mohicans is what I like to call Daniel Day Lewis's descent into Method Madness. Mm, yeah, I have a lot to say about Method. I think. Yeah. I I think you know if you, if you're going to be doing something where I don't know, let's say you're you're a musician then it pays to try and learn the instrument that the character plays. 
that yeah. I'm all about. And if you, you know, there's various different acting techniques which you can pick and choose from. And like you were trying, if you're in a very emotive scene and you need to get yourself to tears, and some people will think of something which is very personal, a relative dying, uh, something that's very sad that's happened to them in their lives, and then use that to fuel the scene. However, I, I cannot take away from the fact that he is highly successful at this and he is the gongs to prove it. But I can also say that I do think Daniel Day-Lewis takes it a bit too far. Just a bit, yeah. Just you a know. touch. Like Reckon he like, chose, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get shot for Lincoln. Well, I know that in Lincoln he insisted that everyone called him Mr. President. When he did My Left Foot, he refused to walk about the set or or feed himself. He had to be fed by someone else. And, you know, I can appreciate the process, but at the same time, they're thinking, no, get up off your ass and pick up a spoon. For the case of this, obviously, he's playing... Um, Jake Sully. Uh, yeah, the, the last of the movie. Yeah, Jake Sully, basically. Uh, he decided to go out and you know, be one of these people and live in the woods and hunt and all stuff like that. And can we say that it did a great job? Yes, it did. Uh, th- this movie is incredible. Have you seen it? I haven't. Or have you just seen the version with Tom Cruise in it? No, I've seen the version with Sam Worthington in it. Oh, okay. The the Avatar. <laughs> There's some things about this that do jar me a little bit. Now, obviously, it's based on the well-known book, but in this version of the movie, there are characters who die that don't actually die in the book. So maybe they just had them for a couple of days. Who knows? Maybe. But in talking about the delays of 47 Ronin, this movie was pushed back also. So this was pushed back from a summer release to a winter release. So realistically, only half a year in comparison to 47 Ronin's full year. Now, I believe the reason being is uh, extensive editing was needed because the film ran three hours. And the released version, I believe, runs is either... There's a couple of different versions of it. So it either runs uh, 117 minutes, just shy of two hours, or there's a version that goes to something like 124 minutes. You see, it would have been released probably in its full entirety if it was released today. Because we seem to be getting more and more used to these long, epic, three-hour movies. Well, you say you're getting used to them. I mean, for me, there's too many movies that are getting made nowadays that do not warrant two and a half hours. Hmm, exactly. Right. I saw Blonde uh, recently, uh, the Anna de Armas movie, and I was like, that could have fit in 100 minutes and yeah. still been great. There is a lot of scenes in there that it just feels fat. you know. And, and even, I've learned from doing a lot of editing my own scripts where it's a case of like, yeah, it's just fat, and I don't know why I want it in there. It's not moving the story along. You look at something like Endgame or Infinity War, and there's lots of pieces going on in there with lots of characters and lots of different individual motivations, and they're all trying to tie it all up. And and in that kind of situation, you think, okay, yes, that works as a two and a half to three hour long movie. But then there's other things where you just look at it and you go, right, this is approaching the two-hour mark now and you're showing no signs of stopping. Why not? This should have easily have been wrapped up way before now. Like you were saying with with Blonde. I've not seen yeah. it, but it, it, you know, it, it highlights my thing perfectly. Yeah, it's like that. Army and the Dead and the recent um, Viking movie The Northman. I think mm. you could have easily shaved half an hour out of those movies and it wouldn't have... M- lessen the impact out of yeah i think that that is something which has been labeled against Zack snyder in particular because he is famous for really long movies and i've got to be honest i do enjoy his films oh me too but there are some times where i watch them and think no you you need someone else in the room to just kind of slap your hand away from the uh the the dial on the the editing suite and just go no that's being cut Think yeah. of brevity look, for once. Look at this way. I'm 44. I've got kids. I've got a job. I don't have two and a half to three hours every single night for a movie. Yeah. Sometimes I just like a nice 90 to 100 minutes story. You know, I'm not having to stop a film halfway through and come back and watch the rest of it the next night. Yeah. 
I hate doing that. Sometimes I never even go back to watch the movie because my interest is gone. That's probably what happened with the last Matrix film or the fact that it might have just been terrible. Um, so this uh, Lost the Mohicans, in getting back to it, mm-hmm. has beautiful Dante Spinotti cinematography. Uh, and if you know who Dante Spinotti is, he is just one of the best cinematographers in the world right now. It has that score that has been used in practically nearly every single epic trailer that you've seen over the last two decades. Uh, It originated in this movie. And originally, actually, Warner Brothers were going to make a version of The Last of the Mohicans in 1976, I believe, with Lindsay Anderson. I think she was down to direct it. And although this is essentially a 20th Century Fox movie, Warner Brothers did release it here in the UK. And I think that is, is it a Morgan Creek? I don't know. I think know. it might have been down to Morgan Creek or New Regency or th- those kind of studios that make yeah. a movie and distribute through Warner Brothers and uh, this. But I was shocked to find out that this was a 20th Century Fox movie when watching it recently because I was like, Warner Brothers did that. I'm it's sure of it. Kind of like with Titanic, because I think we were discussing that with Bill. Yeah, yeah. And he the, said that he three was, different studios. Yeah, <laughs> so it was like 20th Century Fox released it here in the UK, but I think in North America it was Warner Brothers that released it because they had all this kind of deal. So, you know, that kind of thing happens. Last of the Mohicans, no matter what, it is an amazing movie. It truly is. And uh, it's worthy of a rewatch. And my microphone just fell. <laughs> Get back up there. Jesus Christ. My world is falling apart here. And speaking of worlds falling apart, Steve, oh, our last, last one. Um, one. Now, you mentioned Universal Soldier a bit earlier on. Oh, God. Well, let's talk about Roland Emmerich for a moment. Oh, God. And his movie 2012, released in 2009. Oh, God. Oh, yes. Roland Emmerich. <laughs> There's not a city or monument on this planet he is not devastated through Independence Day, Independence Day Resurgence, Godzilla, The Day After Tomorrow, and on probably the biggest scale he has ever done, uh, 2012. And that's a lie already, because he's just done Moonfall. <laughs> and Geostorm as well. Oh, he I didn't think... do that one. He, oh, that did was he Dean. Not the... oh, that was Dean, Dean Devlin, Devlin did that one. Yeah. God. Roland Emmerich hates the Earth. He really does, doesn't he? He he just he, he, they're disaster porn. Yeah, and they all follow the same kind of formulaic thing where there's an every man who may or may not be some kind of scientist gets caught up in the end of the world and he has a family and he has to save the family and then ultimately he comes to he comes to save everybody or some gubbins, you know, whatevs. Okay, listen, same film. I watched 2012 again this week. I remember when this came out and I was so excited for it because, you know, I was so blind back then. And I watched it again recently. Now, it's not a great movie, but there is enjoyment to be gleaned from it not being a great movie. Now, I was surprised to learn this week that this movie is banned in North Korea. (laughs) This is probably one of many movies that are banned in North Korea. Probably. But this one in particular had the most ridiculous reason for being banned. Can you guess what it is? Uh, Does it mention the great leader in a slightly unfavorable light? Nope. Does it show the joining forces of North Korea and South Korea soldiers? Nope. Does it show Kim Jong-un wearing a bikini? No. I will tell the reason why. Uh... The main reason this has been banned, and you can actually get arrested in North Korea if you're found watching this or owning a copy of it. Okay. Is because the year 2012 is the 100th anniversary of Il Sung Kim. That was, who was Kim Jong Un's father? Yeah, or grandfather, whatever. One of them. And you can get arrested for watching it. Or if you're one of the writers of it, you can get arrested on pure bad taste. Now, strangely enough, this whole thing is based on, oh, the the Mayan calendar, is they predicted that the world will end on this day. Now, straight off, that's complete bullshit. Yes. Now, 
the Mayans insisted the world wouldn't end in 2012. It was just their calendar ended then. And it's never, ever been said that the world will end. It's just that there would be change. Yeah, and I think they were fucking right. (laughs) I've seen the proper Mayan calendar stone. Yeah. The genuine thing in Mexico. Yeah, and look, New York was flooded by Hurricane Sandy in 2012. So it wasn't that far off. The, these disasters still did kind of occur and have occurred since. And now we're just in a economic and, well, the whole fucking world's gone to shit, really. You know, but we're not here to depress you. We're here to talk about the world ending. Yeah, you sure the yeah. film shouldn't have been called 2016? Possibly. Or 2022. Why not? We need a sequel, Roland. Roll one out. Um, this, I believe, has to be the biggest body count of any movie ever, ever made. <laughs> because Moonfall, and I have seen it, had nowhere near the catastrophic levels of this movie. There are people, like, plunging to their death in the bolos. You see Los Angeles sink into the sea and crumble, and people are just bodies flying everywhere and death. And I'm there like, I cannot even keep up with the amount of death that is going on in this film. It's practically the entire existence of humankind by these two boats. The, oh no, I was going to say that just has uh, Judd Hirsch on it, but no, I'm thinking of... No, you're thinking no, that's, Independence Day. That's Independence Day, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what's his name? Darrow O'Brien did a stand-up show. He, he talked about 2012 and saying, oh, one of his favourite lines was a scientist comes out and says, oh, the neutrinos have mutated. And then him being like a science bot completely destroys that thing altogether. But then at the very end, Jimmy Mystery, the actor who who said that in the film, came on stage with him, and the two ended up doing like this this like salsa dance, right? To say that to say that oh the neutrinos have gone sexy, and it just I I wouldn't mind, but that whole thing is just absolute pure and total science bollocks well it is you know I'm... it's like the worst possible thing he could have pulled out of his ass yeah the other one that i think is there's a movie peter hyams did called the relic which is a monster in a museum oh, yeah movie it's that, great that, one. that i love yeah but the amount of scientific talk going on in that movie in scenes where that monster is not chomping on people is ridiculous um but I tell you what is also ridiculous even with the world ending you would think that it would be taken very seriously and horrific and, you know, mentally scarring to see this thing. When I saw the Comcast sign falling into the void, I was like, you bastards. Now, Comcast own Universal, who were one of Sony's biggest rivals. Right. And Sony obviously made this movie. So they had to get one dig in at Universal on their way through. And the other thing that really irked me about the movie is the amount of Sony product placement. Practically every single device in this movie is a Sony device. Sony are just lousy for doing that. The the level of product oh, yeah. placement in the Sony movie is it's sickening at times. It was worse than than Coca Cola in the eighties. Mm. That was just everywhere. But it left me with more questions when I was watching 2012 this week. It's like realistically, how many plastic surgeons know how to fly a giant twin turbine engine plane? when they've only done a couple of hours flying a little propeller plane. And why would a plastic surgeon be doing that anyway? And does seriously every kind of Russian businessman have to have a past as a professional boxer? I feel I've seen that happen in so many movies now. It's either that or they're a spy. And then the big question, which I thought was kind of controversial, and then I thought maybe I'm just a dick for bringing this up, but why is it in all these disaster movies... When the world is ending, it always has to be on a black president's watch. <laughs> I don't I'm know. Fu- I'm not fucking wrong. No. <laughs> right? it's, it just seems wow. <laughs> How is it? It always has to be a respected black actor. has to be the president. Looks and like the, the speech world's like, going to be ending. And we're all fucked. Um, Smoke him if you got him. In every single Roland Emmerich movie, there is always at least one political figure or lobbyist or some somebody in politics who has to be that voice of opposition. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's 
um, a creative choice on Roland Emmerich. I think he's maybe anti-political, um, uh, which is not to understand. I mean, he's one of the openly gay directors out there, or was one of the first openly gay directors out there and probably had you know a lot of opposition to a lot of the laws in the States and things like that. So maybe politicians are just seen as a, you know, someone who everything that we want to do, they're going to try and work against it or or be that kind of voice. I think he's Gaia-sexual because he likes to fuck the planet. <laughs> Thank you very much. Wordplay. But the one problem I think Roland Emmerich has with his movies, and especially his big disaster movies, is the typical Emmerich problem. He blows his load in the first act and cannot follow it. Yeah, there's always a big boom, and then it just kind of fizzles out. I think they did all right with Stargate and, what do you call it, Independence Day. Uh, Particularly Independence Day, because that did properly then build back up to this this great, big, you know, exciting finale. But I don't think he's ever been able to capture that again. No. I think that Um, might mostly be down to Dean Devlin not working with him anymore. Well, no, they're still working together. Are they? Yeah, yeah, they, they they do their own projects separately, but they they still come back and do these movies. I mm. think they're enjoyable. You know what you're getting with them. You know you've got to switch your brain off. You know there's going to be a lot of stuff in there that's like fucking bullshit, but you don't exactly feel too insulted with them. No, no to I mean be, you you do know really what you're going in for. Yeah, you know the you know the layout of these movies. You go for them for the carnage. You don't go for the characters. You don't give a shit about them. No. Right? You don't care. There's in two thousand twelve the guy who's now with John Cusack's wife in it, we're not even talking about the cast really, but the guy who's with John Cusack's wife gets grind up in the gears of this gigantic machine and no one gives a shit. <laughs> he's been with the movie for ninety to two, ninety minutes to two hours. And he's not really a bad guy, but he gets grinded up horribly in the gears of this thing. And no one bats an eyelid, including yeah. the woman who's just like, like, in a relationship with him. She's like, oh, he's out of the way. Now I can get back with John Cusack. I always loved you, John. Yeah. Um, but it's like, you know, it's, it's the same with Moonfall. It's ridiculous. It really is. But at the same time, you're still enjoying yourself. You'll watch it. You won't turn it off. Oh, you don't you need know? to tell me about Moonfall. I was in it. <laughs> you were. <laughs> Never forget when I saw it. I was like, Kate, that's Steve. And she was like, oh my God, it is. It even dresses like him. Yeah, to be clear, I wasn't actually in Moonfall. I wish I could have done with the payday. Now we're talking about, uh, I can't remember the guy's name. He played Samuel Tarly in Game of Thrones. He's in it. Uh, Anyway, uh, so that's your anniversaries. Well, that's that's your anniversaries this week. Uh, Bit of a, a mixed bag, a mixed bargain bin. Kind of all worth seeing for what they are. Yeah, but speaking of the bargain bin. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Uh, what's in the box? I think this is the segment that everyone really kind of looks forward to. It's the uncertainty. Yes. Of what is waiting for you. And the knowledge of the Schadenfreude that I may or may not be going through. Yes. True. Well, I mean, let's look at it this way. Uh, 47 Ronin was a really good movie. Yes. Definite thumbs right. up. Yes. And that was at 16%. So we're going for a movie that is 25 or less. Oh, what am I doing? I'm explaining. You're supposed to explain. Tell them, Steve, while I rummage through the box. Okay, well, as you partially heard from Andy there, he's going to put his hand into a box and pull out a name of a movie which is certified 25% or less on Rotten Tomatoes. If I have seen it, then he's going to keep pulling out names of movies until he finds one that I haven't seen, and then I go away and watch it before we record our next episode. Brief enough for you? That's that's pretty brief. Yeah, there you go. Oh, my lord. Oh, God. No, I hate it when you say that. I can officially say we have hit our lowest rated movie ever. Oh, 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 what is it? It's 5%. Oh, Jesus. 5%, Ron. You've been dying for something this low. I have, yeah. (laughs) And you have 
from 2014. Okay. Come it's, on, then. I'm, I'm going to. I'm telling you now. It's Rennie Harlan's directed movie, The Legend of Hercules. No. I have not, not seen, it. seen it. Starring Kellen Lutz. Oh, dear. Scott <laughs> Adkins. Liam McIntyre. And Liam Garrigan. And Scrabble-related names. <laughs> yes. Every name that you can muster from the last letters of your Scrabble game. So, 5%. Jesus. I'm looking okay. forward to this one. This so is going to be Tomatoes, Rotten Tomatoes officially says, get a load of this, cheap looking, poorly acted, mm-hmm. and dull. Okay. The Legend of Hercules is neither fun enough to qualify as an action movie, nor absorbing enough to work on a dramatic level. I feel they're being nice. All right, so what did you say? 5% critic score, but what's the audience score? <laughs> 33. Oh, <laughs> that's the only one that counts as far as I'm concerned. Right. Yeah, don't, don't even be nice. Just be honest. I, I always am. Always am. Yeah. Uh, right. Well, in that case, we've got that to look forward to next week, and you can uh, hear me wax lyrical about that then. Uh, but if you want to wax lyrical about anything that we've talked about in this show, then just get in touch with us. You can do that either through Facebook or Twitter at Poddywood. You can hop over to our subreddit, which is r slash Poddywood, or, you know, just throw a note attached to a brick out the window, <laughs> and then hopefully it'll get carried off on the breeze somehow. I don't know. you got plenty of options. <laughs> Summit, summit like that. Yeah. Summit like that. Right, anyway, well, uh, we're out of here for another week. Uh, we hopefully will have a couple of video. Where I keep saying we do. It's just, oh, schedules are just everywhere at the it's moment. It's hard to pin down. Yes, I it is. But we are going to be getting a flow of them soon with some reoccurring guests, uh, of which I'm going to be talking to Bill shortly. Anyway, so I will pin him down for the next episode. Right. Uh, well, in that case, while we await the arrival of our eminent guests, I would like to say that it is a goodbye from me. And it's a bigger goodbye from me. Bye. Midi-chlorians. You can get cream for that.